welcome to episode 28 of the Green and Healthy Places podcast, in which we explore the themes of well-being and sustainability in real estate and hospitality today. I'm your host, Matt Morley, founder of Biophilico Wellbeing Interiors and Biofit Health and Fitness. Episode 28 takes us to Dubai, where we're talking to Bobby Hartshorn, co-founder and chief well-being officer at Wellwise, a UK and UAE-based business that takes an integrated diagnostics approach to delivering value via workplace well-being programs for corporations large and small. Our conversation covers Bobby's experience creating a framework for student well-being via an innovative accommodation offer, Wellwise's research-driven diagnostic system approach to workplace well-being, their employee engagement process to build a culture around well-being, their network of specialists providing bespoke solutions covering everything from sleep quality to office design and environmental health, the growing importance of mental health support at work, the subtle but important difference between wellness and well-being, and finally, the opportunities in the UAE market for workplace wellness. If you like this type of content, please hit subscribe. You can find my contact details in the show notes. Bobby is at bewellwise.com, as it sounds. Nada mas. Let's get into it. Bobby, let's do this. If I may, I'm going to start by going back in time a little bit, because something came out of your CV as I was doing my research for this conversation, and it's a it's a sector that seems to be really going through a transformation at the moment. I know it's no longer what you do, but I did want to just pick your brains a little bit on the student accommodation space. And you had a role as head of well-being for Global Student Accommodation Group. And really the, there you were targeting Generation Z, as I see it. And it's a dynamic sector. So you're combining wellness with student accommodation. Like, What did that give you and how did that go on to influence where you are today running various workplace wellness businesses? Yeah, um, well, it was a really interesting journey, uh, Matt. The thing about that role at GSA was that I created it for myself. And so um, it was really the first of its kind in the um, private built student accommodation environment, although there had been similar roles in universities. And so it was a real very steep learning curve and it was really in response to a growing concern about the well-being of students and the types of issues that were increasingly coming up in our residences but also just around universities in general Um, and what I learned was that for students well-being was relatively universal Um, there were kind of nine key areas that we were finding were the constant sources of stress or the opportunities to improve well-being. And they were financial, cultural, physical, mental, academic, spiritual, career and environmental. And that really it was this extreme change that and this transition that young people are going through when they go from university, uh, sorry, when they go from school into university, that really creates this instability where stress and low well-being and challenges can fester. And the degree to which 
an individual has the ability to cope with those, to address them, um, to reduce them varies massively depending on who they are, where they come from, uh, what experiences they've had in the past. And so whilst we were able to build a framework for well-being that was fairly um, consistent across the world, how each individual student engaged with that or benefited from it really did vary and there was certainly no one size fits all and then what happened was it dawned on me that these young people who were really quite different to the types of students that we'd had previously sort of the millennials um, and the way they behaved and what they valued and what got them motivated and what stressed them was very different and it and it dawned on me that those young people were going to enter the workforce (laughs) And that they were going to present some interesting and new challenges to employers in the same way that they had presented new and interesting challenges to the student accommodation sector. And so I got really into looking at that transition, again, that vulnerable period of transition out of university and into the workplace. And I started to look at how existing working practices were maybe not going to align particularly well with um, this new generation and maybe some of the challenges that were going to crop up. And it wasn't long before we started to see burnout in mid-20-year-olds who'd been in the workplace less than 10 years. It wasn't long before we started to see um, employers very concerned about mental health issues for younger employees and um, a real change in pattern in terms of what those young employees were seeking from their employers. And it was way beyond cash. It, was, it, it just was so much more than financial gain. And so um, this is really where my interest in the workplace began. And then COVID uh, cropped around the corner, (laughs) gave us all a bit of a fright. And that was really an interesting experience because putting a workplace under an exceptionally extreme set of circumstances like COVID, and you tend to bring out either the best or the worst or a mixture of both. And so I really then started to observe what happens in a workplace under extreme circumstances and what happens to employees and leaders and managers under extreme work, uh, workplace environments. And so um, that really was what gave, um, gave the sort of leeway for me to take the, take the jump out of the student accommodation world and into the workplace world, because there were a lot of similarities and crossovers um, that I could draw on. But there was also a whole world of stuff I was interested in that I wanted to explore further. So am I right in thinking then with the student accommodation, you were, to use the terminology from, from the hotel world, of you were dealing with uh, hardware and software. So you were dealing both with sort of training and, and teaching and the mental game, as well as the physical game. So the actual spaces, I mean, it's accommodation. So the spaces in which these people were, the students were spending their time sleeping at night, but they also then providing if you like more operational solutions to, um, yeah, keeping them sane and healthy and, and positive and upbeat, right? Absolutely, and and it's quite strange actually from the physical um, perspective, Matt, because universities for a really long time have been doing a lot to support students across all of those pillars that I mentioned earlier, but. But the one area that always seemed to be neglected or that was never really optimized was the accommodation, whether that was university owned accommodation or whether it was privately owned accommodation. And it struck me that that the, the 
the nature of your home as the place where you're going to be engaging with your personal studies, where you're going to have your downtime, where you're going to be maybe alone um, in your room, are the times when the challenges are probably going to rear their ugly heads and and it was really important for us to make sure that our teams on in the residences knew how to support students in that environment. But increasingly, that as we were upgrading residences, as we were building new residences, how we laid those structures out, how we built community, how we identified whether students were isolated or, or behaving differently to maybe their normal patterns, that all became part of it. Um, so, yeah, absolutely, operational and physical um, and training. There seem to be just so many parallels between the two, and without sort of trying to labour the point too much, if you were to switch out what you've just described in the last couple of minutes, but instead of describing students, we would describe staff or, mm-hmm. or employees. And, in fact, you know, a lot of those same issues can come up or have been coming up especially over the last few years around stress and anxiety and and what have you and so you then to then transition across into the next phase of your career you you moved to launch your own business in October 2020 and surrender and there you're focusing more as I understand it on sort of a consultancy role for workplace well-being is that right? Absolutely um it just felt like absolutely my natural transition and my passion had really gone into that space. Not that I wasn't still passionate about the student space, but I felt like I'd kind of done a huge amount in the student space and 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 there were there were great people there who could carry that on and, and evolve it further. And, and my passion had moved really into the workplace and how the parallels, as you've already um, alluded to, could transition across. And um, and really set up and surrender as a as a small independent workplace wellbeing consultancy. I could see in the same way as five years previously, I could see that the university sector was struggling with student wellbeing. The exact same was happening now with employees, uh, employers struggling with employee wellbeing. Um, I was also observing a lot of snake oil solutions and a lot of well washing, um, we call it. And in in your field, you have green washing. Um, And this idea that it it kind of wasn't very authentic, that that a lot of the work and practice going on in this space was was at a very surface level, plaster over the cracks, put a nice picture on your website and kind of say that you're doing well-being. But as time went on, it became very apparent to organizations that that really wasn't enough and it wasn't getting to the heart of the actual challenges and unpacking those and, and really helping them to address the impact that um, a poor well-being workforce creates for an, for an organization. And that was really where I wanted to step in with a much more rigorous and, um, I guess, scientific approach to well-being. Um, but I was really held back in doing that because what I didn't have that I really wanted was a um, really strong research platform. I kind of knew all the ingredients that um, were required through my own experience and through all the research I'd done, but I wasn't able to get those articulated in a meaningful way because I didn't have a research platform. And so really um, not wanting to be just another snake oil charmer or just another um, well washer, I set about trying to solve that riddle. And that was really when um, Tim Daplin and Wellwise came into the picture. I think it's a, it's a crucial point because 
uh, as you've suggested, you know, typically when going in on these projects, when there's, there is a problem, it's like you know, by the time you get to the mechanic, you've, something's gone wrong with the car. So often by the time <laughs> a consultant's brought in, right, it, it's, you, you've got like, people you know, complaining or the mood and the, the, the atmosphere in the office is really turned negative or whatever it might be. Something's going wrong. I think it's quite rare that it sort of anticipation, anticipates mm-hmm. a potential need. Typically, you're kind of coming a little bit late to the game. So you have to deliver on the data and the numbers. And it's just it's not enough to, to come and sort of, you know, paint some, some, as you say, some nice pictures and some nice words and hope everything works out. So you then took this sort of far more data-driven and research-driven approach with Wellwise or um, where you're currently Clearly, uh, spending a lot of your time and energy, and it it looks to be an interesting new addition. So, why don't we dig into that a little bit? So, in terms of like what that brings to the market and the needs that it's addressing, like how are you resolving some of the issues that are out there at the moment? Yeah. So, look, um, Tim's uh, Tim, my business partner, Tim Daplin, um, he already had a really, really strong research platform that funnily enough he was using in the student space which is how Tim and I know each other but he was also using it in in other um, industries as well and so I knew that that platform and the strength of the, the tech involved in that platform was exactly what we were going to need to unpack the complexity of what we now call the workplace well-being network um, so we set about understanding um, building on our knowledge understanding what Um, currently employers were purchasing in this space what issues were they trying to target what um, solutions were already on the market what research was already out there what questions were being asked and we started to spot some key patterns and these kind of were split into they were either looking at what was happening with the employees themselves Um, So why are our employees not engaged? How do we build resilience? Why are our employees um, eating a terrible diet? Why are they not sleeping properly? Or they would then look at organizational factors, although there was a lot less of that going on. But you would say, you know, is our management style appropriate for a modern workforce? Are our rewards and recognitions keeping up with the latest trends and desires of our employees? And so you had these kind of two um, sides of workplace well-being. But what you didn't really have was anybody who was working out how the two fit together, how they impacted one another, and where they could strengthen each other. And that was really what Tim and I were were curious to see if we could create. And it turned out we could. So that was great. Um, and And in kind of talking to business leaders, what we discovered was three really important things. The first was that Workplace well-being and employee well-being was top priority or at least top five priority for every single business leader we spoke to. The second was that they were all completely overwhelmed by the amount of choice, the amount of solutions, the amount of conversation, the diversity of the discussion. And they were really struggling to navigate through to something that meant something to their own organization and their own situation. And the third thing was that a lot of them had already started and maybe even four or five years in have been investing in um, solutions and approaches and building teams and building structures around this stuff, but it wasn't actually really yielding what they kind of hoped. And so there was this kind of disillusionment or this paralysis happening where they were struck with this problem they just could not solve. 
And so after six months of research and, and diving into this topic, we, we built a diagnostic system that brings those two factors together, that organizational side and that employee side. And what we're able to offer organizations now is really, it comes down to clarity, being able to understand exactly what's happening in your organization, where the pain points are being created, where the challenges are arising from, and what the causation and outcomes of those are, what the cost of those are is to your organization. And then to help them to navigate through a strategic blueprint to a much more successful place, to re um, redesign or um, redeploy their resources um, into the areas where it was going to have the most impact the quickest and then build from there to where they wanted to go. Okay, so you're you're beginning that process with a data collection phase. So presumably yeah. research and surveys. You then, <laughs> so you're, you're getting both qualitative and quantitative data that gives you your baseline, right? And that forms part of your, of the, the process, your wise process, as you call it, right? Yes. And then from there, where do you, where do you go on to? Well, actually, there's actually a step before the data collection process, which we call the why phase, W for, for why. Um, and really, this is, this is often missing as well, um, we discovered when we're doing our research, is that quite often companies don't actually understand why it is that they're investing or think that they should be investing in workplace well-being. They, they've either caught onto a trend or they've spotted a specific issue such as engagement or resilience or health, or they have um, a problem with something like productivity or engagement. And they go, oh, well, well-being must be the answer. So because everybody's telling us that's the answer. But actually, when you start to talk to different employees across an organization, particularly at the senior level, you discover that there's actually quite a big difference in, in what they understand well-being is going to bring to the table. And some of them have got it, unfortunately, quite wrong. <laughs> um, and some of them have got it right, but it's not aligned to, to their colleagues. And the other big why is why are you doing what you're already doing? So a lot of organizations have already invested in this space. They've already bought in consultants. They've already built a framework. They're already doing activities. But why did they choose that approach in the first place? And then why isn't it working? So we have to, we have to understand all of that whyness before we can do the survey. Because what the survey then allows us to do is to dig into those issues a bit further, as well as just cover off the, the workplace well-being network that I already alluded to with those, those two sides. And then once we've got those two factors, we can look at them together and say, well, you're saying you want to achieve X, but your current approach isn't doing that. And your employees are still struggling with this factor because of this situation. And so what we're then able to do is move on to the S, the strategize um, element of the WISE process, and, and help them to use all of that insight, use that quantitative and qualitative insight and really drill down on a strategy that is going to help them achieve their why um, by unpacking um, the identified issues that, that we got at the I stage. So, so that's what we do. And then after we've done that, we've got a lovely strategy on a piece of paper. Well, it's, it's next to useless when it's only on a piece of paper. And it's, it's now about in, engaging. It's the, the, the E phase of our WISE process. 
you have to start engaging people. And there's two, two, essentially two sets of people you need to engage. The first one, of course, is your employees. So how are you going to build them up, get them on board, um, get them bought into the process, get them contributing to it uh, and, and building a culture around well-being? And the second people you have to engage are professionals and specialists and, and that they could be, um, you know, sleep specialists or office design specialists or manage, management and leadership specialists. You know, there'll be a whole mixture of things. So um, that, that, that phase is really important as well. Um, and it's really cool, actually, the way that that plays out, Matt, because those p- professionals that we bring in and we've got a network of people we can rely on um, that's growing <laughs> seemingly daily, um, they don't come into an unknown quantity. They come in at the point that we've already understood the why. We've already done all that quantitative data and analysis. So we're able to point them in the direction of the specific challenge that we're trying to target with their solution. So they're not trying to create a solution blind. Um, They've got some real tangible insights themselves that make their impact much greater. And then once you've done all of that and you've started to embed some um, different solutions, you're of course going to want to know whether it's working. And that's where we um, bring in our reevaluation, whether that's we run, we run the whole system again or whether we periodically um, you know, look at a particular area um, on a smaller scale. Um, and we can be quite agile with that now with technology and dashboards at, at our disposal to, to be able to, to dig in a, to a deeper or a shallower level, depending on the need of the organization at that time. Is that then, again, based on, let's call it employee satisfaction? Because often it's this question from from the sort of the CEO, CFO character saying, okay, great, we're going to do all of this. And, you know, what are, what are the bottom line results? Like, what are we actually getting from all of this beyond some intangible sense of having a happier workforce? So when, you, when you're faced with that question, you're creating a lot of data at the front end, you're then delivering a strategy. And then at the back end, as you're sort of looping back in to generate some, if you like, proof of concept, uh, look, it's working. What, typically, what what data points are you levering, leveraging most there in that conversation? The thing that is so awesome about well-being is that it improves almost anything that a CEO cares about. <laughs> um, so a high well-being workforce is more productive, they're more engaged, they're more satisfied, they're more innovative, they're more collaborative, they're more creative, they're far more likely to stay, so retention, um, they're also far more likely to recommend your, um, empl- your your workplace as somewhere for others to come in. So it helps with recruitment. Um, you get better team cohesion. You get better team creativity. And essentially, it, it just elevates everything. Um, if there's a spe- specific thing that they're particularly targeting so let's say they've got really low engagement or really low productivity then we can certainly engineer this the strategy initially to specifically seek to drive improvements there but what you find with well-being or improved well-being in general is that as it as it elevates it just pulls everything up um it's really it's really quite fascinating um, in that in that regard um, and the other thing that often is overlooked is it as a result of all of this, it drives um, the bottom line. 
So we know that organizations with high workplace well-being um, have a two to three percent better performance on the stock market. We know that um, they have better customer loyalty. We know that they have better sales performance. So it, it, it really does, you know, I'm really not trying to over egg the pudding here, but when you have a high well-being workforce, everything else tends to fall into place. And so that's why we really discourage people from focusing on just something like resilience or just engagement or just productivity and rather look at well-being because your 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 dividends, your return for an investment in well-being will be so much greater and so much broader than if you just try and pinpoint one specific problem and, and neglect the other elements of well-being. Um, so yeah, lots that's of clear. things. Okay, and so if we then dig a little bit deeper into the uh, the wellness practitioners, so in terms of the the employee experience, apart from contributing to uh, creating some initial baseline data around how things are performing in the office at the moment, then in terms of the lived experience, what they're engaging with are these practitioners who come in and perhaps you could just sort of a hypothetical example or a real life case study of you know perhaps that mix of two three four practitioners that you might bring in that would have an immediate impact on on the employee experience so whether it's sort of if it's a fitness or wellness classes or the environment that they're working in because that at the end of the day is the the process in action isn't it it's it's the staff Absolutely. saying oh well look here it is the, the changes are coming and and whether that works or not and whether you need to tweak it a little bit so typically like how do you see that playing out yeah, it's going to be really interesting um, on a case by case basis as to as to which practitioner or which approach you choose to invest in and in, in, and in what order you choose to take them on. Um, actually, the, the, aside from practitioners, I'll come back to that in, in a moment. But actually, there's a huge amount that you can just do internally. You don't always need. Um, external help with this. Sometimes the results and the um, the strategy is about actually assessing what's happening internally and, and 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 working out challenges that you've got internally that you can actually fix yourself. So it's not always about saying right over to um, a handful of people who are going to rescue your business because because a lot of the answers exist internally and you've already got talent who can do that. But where there is um, gaps in your experience or your knowledge or their specialist areas that your your organization is not familiar with, it could be um, a real mixture of things. We're seeing a huge rise, for instance, in sleep um, practitioners as we increasingly understand the power of good sleep and the cost of bad sleep on everything that is human about us. Um, we're seeing uh, as a result of COVID and this big conversation Matt, around hybrid working and, and trying to attract people back to the office. What even is an office now? I mean, th- this question has just come up in the last six months where what we've always considered to be an office, the purpose of an office, what an office should do has just been blown out of the water. And in order to attract people back to these places that we call offices, um, we're having to get very creative about what they look like, how they serve us, what function they fulfill, how they enable success. So you're going to definitely have a big push in terms of um, office design and environmental um, factors that that help to drive those um, things. Um, I think you're going to definitely see a rise in the need for mental health support. Um, compensation and benefits design is going to change because 
cash is no longer king, as I already alluded to. And then probably on the less traditional side, I think you're going to start to see a rise in well-being scientists like myself um, who can who can help people to unpack that data. You're going to um, have people who um, can assess your strategy as an organization and how well-being can help you to achieve that. I think we're probably going to see a lot more team practitioners as, as the role of teams especially with a hybrid slash remote working changes and challenges that are coming in. Um, And also one of the big areas I I suspect was going to be leadership and management training. We're moving from hero leadership to servant leadership. And that is a massive shift in how you act, how you think, what you do, the decisions you make, the way that you lead. And, and that's a, a real um, big area of development that that also and, and sustainable leadership, which I don't mean sustainable in terms of environmental sustainability, although, of course, that is very important. I mean, sustaining yourself as a leader, as, as the world of leadership just becomes so increasingly um, high pressured. How do you maintain your best leadership capabilities by by having high well-being yourself and how do you then invoke that sense of um, it's good to have a high well-being workforce and and sort of that gets moved down the organization so yeah so I think there's going to be some interesting um, developments in in that space and then finally I think it's probably going to be a shift in HR um, practices performance management or rather it should be performance optimization um, employer branding, recruitment strategies, and um, the design of the employee experience. They're all going to be um, things that I, I think are going to grow in terms of practitioner needs. You've been using the term well-being throughout this conversation. And I think it's, I read something on your site recently where you tried to pick apart the two concepts of wellness and well-being. It can seem um not irrelevant, but it can seem that the two terms almost just merge into one. But I was interested to hear your thoughts on how you consider well-being to be perhaps more of a 360 view of of yeah being physically and mentally in a good place versus wellness that was perhaps more limited. Is that is that a fair assumption? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really hard now because as you said, well-being and wellness are sometimes just used interchangeably, but actually they do have slightly different definitions and they definitely have different histories. Um, For me, um, wellness generally refers to sort of an individual person's physical and to a degree mental well-being, um, whereas well-being <laughs> has a broader and deeper meaning which incorporates things like life satisfaction accomplishment motivation purpose engagement um i think well-being is something that's more easily applied to groups which when we think about the workplace is important in terms of the well-being dynamics of teams the well-being dynamics of departments of, of offices of regions etc so you know, there's there's that kind of dual individual versus group application of well-being that's harder to express in wellness terms. I mean, the International Labour Organization describes workplace well-being um, as related to all aspects of working life, from the quality and safety of the physical environment to how workers feel about their work, their working environment, the climate at work and work organization. And why does it matter? Well, because 
the lens with which you understand well-being or wellness, it really doesn't matter what you call it, but the lens by which you understand it is going to massively influence your strategic approach to it, the types of um, practitioners you engage, the types of consultants you you engage, the data that you're looking for. Um, if If it's understood in the more limited historic realms of wellness, there is a risk that you will miss out on the opportunities to explore it through that much deeper lens of what we call well-being. And typically we see well-being referred to in the science and the data as opposed to wellness. So I kind of tend to feel that it's a slightly more rigorous subject. Uh, well-being is a more rigorous subject than wellness. Yeah, I get it. I like that. Um, and we haven't touched on your location, but you're obviously straddling two countries in a sense between the UK and Dubai, the UAE. Now, how do you see those two locations differing in terms of interpretations of workplace well-being? Are you seeing certain things that have much more relevance or importance in the UAE versus in the UK, for example, or vice versa? Do you know what? In many ways, it's not as different as you might expect. Um and there's some strengths and benefits to both uh, that, that have sort of come out actually in the last four or five months that I've observed. The, th- the thing we have to understand is that well-being is universal. How we approach it, how we solve it, how we understand it, how we address it, the degree to which we're open to do that varies from culture to culture. But the actual ingredients or factors that contribute to a human's well-being are are the same the world over. Um, And, you know, as cities and any major city anywhere in the world that has a diverse cultural population is going to have issues and challenges and opportunities because of that um, variance. My, My gut feeling is that a lot of the issues are prevailing the world over. They're not unique to particular cultures. So again, coming back to this shift from hero leadership to servant leadership, that is happening in the West as much as it's happening here. Um, Race and gender inequalities uh, that are still prevailing the world over, old habits dying hard in, in kind of very highly bureaucratic, very highly hierarchical issues. Um, these exist here as much as they exist in the West. For me, I think the only major hurdle is that there is probably a slightly delayed discourse here um, and that maybe the conversation hasn't been as open for as long um, in, in the Middle East, in the Gulf region as it has been in the West. So people's kind of openness or understanding or literacy around the topic is maybe slightly lower here. But in some ways, that actually, Matt, presents an opportunity for this region because because the well-being conversation and the understanding of well-being has matured so quickly and, and our data and our best practice evolution has been so fast, actually, I find that sometimes the West is carrying a bit of old baggage in this space um, and a little bit of like, well, we've been on this journey for five years now and nothing's changed or little has changed. And so there's a frustration there. Whereas 
the Gulf region is joining the conversation at a much um, more advanced stage and a much deeper understanding of, of the science behind it. And so they, they don't have to shed their baggage before they can engage at this higher level, which in many ways could present a really, really cool opportunity for them um, to leapfrog some of the resistance that we maybe are seeing in, in the West. And actually, that has definitely played out. I've, I have had more traction and interest and engagement from organizations in this region, including Saudi and the UAE, than I have yet had in the UK, where you would expect the conversation to be much more mature. Nice. Well, it sounds like you uh, you could be in the right place at the right time. So uh, that <laughs> really? was great. It was a really insightful conversation. So thank you so much for your time. How can people reach out and contact you? Where can they find you online? Yeah, so um, the best place to contact us is uh, Um We've got some really great free resources for people there. We've got a free to download white paper, which explores um, the ca- current challenges with well-being and how to improve them. We've got a Uh, online self-assessment tool where people can go in and answer a handful of questions and then get some tailored advice um, into their emails and we've got a whole host of blogs and ebooks and things that are exploring a lot of the themes we've talked about today so that's a great starting point and there's obviously contact us opportunities there and then um, follow us on LinkedIn LinkedIn's where most of our sort of um, thought leadership is taking place so that's a really cool place to to follow us which is again uh, be well wise at LinkedIn so, um, yeah, that, that would be where to find us. Great. All right, Wilson, thanks so much for your time. It's been fun. Pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me, Matt.